You may be seated. If you will, turn in your Bibles to the 20th chapter, the Gospel of Luke, as we continue our study through the Word. So Jesus is headed towards Jerusalem for the final Passover. And you will remember he heads through Jericho and there's blind Bartimaeus and he heals Bartimaeus. You'll remember as he passes through Jericho that Zacchaeus is there and climbs a tree in order to gain a better view. And Jesus ministers to Zacchaeus. And, and then we see Jesus as he ascends from Jericho up and towards Jerusalem. He stays outside of Jerusalem. You'll remember at the Bethany there in the house of Mary and Martha and Lazarus and, and attends a, a feast there. And then it is the morning for the presentation of Messiah, the triumphal entry. And, and so he heads towards Jerusalem. Remember, the pilgrims are all streaming towards Jerusalem. And, and as they discover that Jesus is on the road with them, word spreads and the crowd begins to gather. They stop just outside of a little village, Bethphage, and there the disciples are sent in to get the colt for Jesus to ride upon. The cloaks are put upon him. Jesus mounts the colt. The cloaks are set before the colt and, and Jesus begins to make his approach to Jerusalem. The excitement of the crowd absolutely palpable. And, and as Jesus now gets in closer, the crowds become larger and, and he crests the Mount of Olives and, and now Jerusalem begins to come into view. Word has raced ahead into Jerusalem that Jesus is on his way and the crowd from Jerusalem comes out to meet the crowd that is with Jesus and, and the hallelujahs and the son of David's uh, are going forth and the palms are being waved and the people are in one accord declaring Jesus so welcoming him and giving him praise. You'll remember that the religious leaders, they came out of Jerusalem and they told Jesus, stop, stop the crowds from declaring you to be the Messiah. Stop receiving those uh, uh, acclaims from the crowd as well. And and you remember that Jesus said, if I was to silence the crowds, even the stones themselves would cry out. Jesus uh, turns the corner and the, the view of the temple comes uh, before him and Jesus breaks down and starts to weep, uh, starts to wail. He sorrows over the condition of the rejection of the nation now as he has presented himself on the very day that had been prophesied by Daniel. And, and now as the religious leaders are set against him, entrenched uh, and seeking his destruction, they invite destruction upon themselves. Whenever we reject truth, whenever we reject salvation and deliverance, we embrace judgment and destruction. And so Jesus uh, saw the judgment that would ultimately come upon the city and he weeps uh, over it. He enters into the city and makes his way uh, to the temple. 
And as he comes now into the court of the Gentiles, the court of the Gentiles, it was the the place there within the outer skirts uh, of the temple where the whole world, uh, where the Gentiles were invited to come and to worship God. They weren't allowed in the temple, but they could come to the court of the Gentiles. It was there that they could pray and they could come near to God. The nation of Israel was to be that light set upon a hill to show the rest of the world what a people connected rightly to the true and the living God would be like. And and their example to the world would draw the nations to them. And there was a place where they could come on that holy mountain, on the temple mount itself, draw near to that temple and offer up their prayers and come near to the Shekinah glory of God that was contained right there inside the temple. And as Jesus comes to this holy pavilion, to this court of the Gentiles, rather than seeing the Gentiles there praying to God as it was created and designed for. Instead, there was a carnival atmosphere that was taking place. Merchants were buying and selling. Money changers were trading for shekels. And, and those that were there selling the sacrifices uh, were all set up shop. The court of the Gentiles also was being used as a, as a cut through from one side of Jerusalem to the other. It was a shortcut rather than going all the way around the temple. You cut right through, go right through the court of the Gentiles. And, and what was meant to be sanctified, set apart, was profaned now by common use and had been turned into a marketplace. Jesus enters into the court of the Gentiles and he sweeps it clean. He drives uh, out the merchants and, and the merchandise and overturns tables. My father's house is a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves and he cleanses the the temple. It is interesting that at Passover that you were to, in your own house, go and to clean out all of the leaven that was in your house. Leaven is yeast. It's a typology of sin itself. And so all of the yeast was to be swept out of a house, out of the kitchens and bedrooms, out of every area. In fact, spring cleaning comes from the tradition of cleaning the houses at Passover. And after it was completely cleaned out, then the head of the household would take a candle and he would ceremonially go through the entire house looking in the corners for the, uh, the sin. And afterwards, he would declare the house to be clean and ready to celebrate in Passover. Jesus comes to his father's house and there is the leaven all over the court of the Gentiles and and he takes and cleans it out in preparation of the Passover. He departs and heads back to Bethany each night in this final week he will spend there in Bethany and make his entrances into the city. You remember that there had been 
the announcement from the religious leaders that if anybody knew where Jesus was, they were to let them know. They thought that Jesus was going to come slinking up uh, into the, the Passover and be hiding in the shadows. They had no idea that he would make a public triumphal entry marching into the acclaim of the crowds. Uh, throughout the week, Jesus wouldn't be secretly con- commissioning with people a rebellion, but rather he would be public right out in front every day coming to the temple itself and and there he will be teaching and preaching. They know where Jesus is. The problem now is what to do with him. They are seeking to destroy Jesus. They have already purposed in their heart that he is a threat to their security of the nation, their security of the nation. They are concerned that he is going to lead a massive rebellion against Rome. And if the people revolt against Rome, Rome will sweep in and put down the rebellion and they will be thrown out as the leaders of the nation. And so they are seeking how they can get rid of Jesus. Now, their capital punishment had been removed from them. They were allowed to operate the nation and to govern it. But when you were a subjugated nation, you were not allowed to enforce capital punishment upon the people. Rome must be the ones. And so the Roman charge would need to be forged and formulated so that the Romans could crucify Jesus And so Jesus now publicly coming every day into the temple. So they are going to seek to confront Jesus now to try and find a sound bite from him to create traps uh, for him try and remove his popularity and neutralize him and and ultimately to destroy him. And so we will watch Jesus as he walks through this final week, the end of which will culminate with his crucifixion. His crucifixion, not a defeat, but a victory. A victory now over the grave, over death, over sin and the purpose for which he came, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world will be offered up to remove the sins of mankind and to open up the gates of heaven and to usher in the new covenant, the covenant of grace. And so we begin here in Luke's gospel, chapter 20, beginning in verse 1, and it says, Now it happened on one of those days as he taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel. Look at that. He was preaching the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel message, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and there is no other way into heaven except through me. That he was replacing now in the very temple itself, the seat of the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant of God. There in the temple, Jesus in the precincts, in the porticos, is declaring that there is a new covenant that is emerging out of the old covenant and eclipsing it, not destroying it, but fulfilling it, that now there is going to be a new covenant where people can come into a deeper, closer approach to God than they have ever experienced before, and that there is no other way into the presence 
presence of God except through him. When you think about the gates of heaven, the pearly gates opening up to heaven and, and you being ushered through them into heaven, Jesus is the gate. He is the door. And there is no other way. There's no side door and there's no back door into heaven. You must come through Jesus Christ. And so he's in the temple in front of the religious leaders telling them that there is a new covenant that is eclipsing the old covenant and that he is the way, the truth, and the life and doing this publicly to the masses at the feast of Passover right in front of them. And it says that the chief priests and the scribes together with the elders confronted him. Jesus had just cleansed the, the temple, had just gone in and take authority to drive out the merchants and the money changers. And so they are going to confront Jesus on that authority, the issue of authority. Who do you think you are coming into our temple? We are the religious leaders. We are the high priests and the priests. We are the ones that have been commissioned by God through Moses to oversee the temple. And you come in here and you just start doing whatever it is that you want to do. Who do you think you are? And so that's the question. What's the authority that you have to come into the temple and to start to tell anybody what to do. And so they spoke to him, verse 2, saying, Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who is he who gave you this authority? So they come and they now in front of the entire population of the crowd. They don't pull Jesus aside privately and have a, a conversation with him. In front of everybody, they are challenging Jesus' authority for the cleansing of the temple. And, and what they are inferring now is, is that he has no authority. The religious leaders, the high priests, the Sanhedrin, those that are in charge, they did not commission him or authorize him to come in and cleanse the temple. And so he is a self-appointed. He's operating on his own. He is a rebel. And so by asking him this question in front of everybody, they are seeking to shame Jesus. And so what authority? So the first question, by what authority? In other words, uh, throughout the Old Testament, we see that God governed his people through priests, prophets, and kings. Priests, prophets, and kings. Those are the authority that we find in the Old Testament. Jesus, are, did you come into the temple as a priest? Are you now functioning as a priest? Because I don't think you're from the tribe of Levi. And I don't think that you're a priest. And priests are the ones that have authority over the temple. But you're not a priest. Are you functioning as a prophet? Uh, uh, are you declaring yourself to be a, a prophet from God? And as a prophet, are you taking authority over the, the temple of God? Or are you a king? Are you now declaring that you yourself are a king? And by that authority, you are now stepping into the temple and, and giving directions. What, what functioning office, what authority are you claiming? And, and who gave you this authority? Who made you a priest or a prophet or a king? And so a two-part question that they asked Jesus concerning authority. And so Jesus answers, verse 3, but he answered and said to them, I also will ask you one thing and answer me. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? 
So Jesus basically says, you want to talk authority? Excellent. Let's talk authority. I'm delighted to discuss this with you. I will answer your question on authority if you will answer me a question about authority. What was the authority behind John the Baptist? He's asking them the question, was John the Baptist a prophet or was he not a prophet? Now, the religious leaders, their sole responsibility is to guard the scriptures and to declare who would be a true prophet and who's a false prophet. Should we listen to this person as a prophet from God or are they not? Their job is to investigate the credentials and to be able to determine whether or not a person was a prophet from God. You'll remember that for hundreds of years since the close of the Old Testament in Malachi, there had not been a prophet that had risen up in the nation and then suddenly, John the Baptist burst onto the scene there at the Jordan River, baptizing people, calling them to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand and get your hearts ready for the one who is coming. There is one coming after me, John would say, that is so much greater than I, that I am not even worthy to latch his sandals. I baptize with water, but he will baptize with fire and with the Holy Spirit and his winnowing fan is in his hand. And when Jesus came to the Jordan River, he goes, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I had spoken. I must decrease that he must increase. And so John, the preparatory forerunner to Jesus Christ had pointed all people to Jesus as the Messiah. So the question that Jesus asks them, John the Baptist who is he? Is he a prophet? <laughs> or is he just a self-appointed person that was running around in the wilderness doing whatever it is that he wanted? And so they reasoned, verse 5, among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us, for they are persuaded that John was a prophet. And so suddenly, where they were seeking to put Jesus onto the horns of a dilemma, they themselves are the ones uh, uh, that are now in the dilemma. If they say, we don't believe that John was a prophet, the people are going to go crazy because they know, they know that John was a prophet. But if they declare John to have been a prophet, uh, then Jesus is simply going to ask them, then why didn't you receive a prophet's testimony about me? And so they respond and they answer. Verse 7. So they answered that they did not know where it was from. We don't know. <laughs> You're the religious leaders of the nation. By this time, John the Baptist had already been beheaded by Herod. His ministry was done, and you haven't figured out whether or not John was a prophet or not. It was a humiliating and shameful answer for the religious leaders to say they don't know whether John the Baptist was an actual prophet or not. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Jesus was implying that the same authority behind John the Baptist is the same authority behind him. 
And if you are not willing to declare the authority behind John the Baptist, I am not going to declare it to you. And so they are humiliated, embarrassed in the temple, at Passover, amongst the crowds, as Jesus now calls them out. And as they are about to slink away in defeat, and Jesus now is going to tell a parable. It is a scathing parable. It is a condemnation upon the religious leaders in this parable. And the minute that Jesus mentions the word vine, they know that he is talking about them. The vine is a symbol of the nation of Israel throughout the Old Testament. We see God takes the vine and plants it there in Israel and it is to be fruitful and God is the vine dresser. And, and so we see the, uh, the symbolism throughout. And, and so the vine is the nation of Israel and and so Jesus begins in this parable. Then he began to tell the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard, leased it to vine dressers, and went into a far country for a long time. An economic arrangement that was common in Jesus' day was an absentee landowner. If you owned land, you could hire or lease it to a businessman who would then, he would take and cultivate that vineyard and he would bring in the harvest and then that businessman would, would trade and, and exchange a portion of the profits for the use of the land. And so an absentee landowner in contract with someone who was going to farm the land and to be able to split now the profits so when it came time to bring the harvest in. And so uh, a man plants a vineyard, he's absentee, leases it to vine dressers, goes into a far country for a long time. And now at vintage time, that's the time that the profits would be split up. He sent a servant to the vine dressers that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the vine dressers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. In the parable, God is the owner of the vineyard. God is the one that says that he owns the property of the nation of Israel and that he allows the people of Israel to be upon his land. And so we see here the religious leaders now are the ones who are responsible for overseeing the vineyard. And so it is time now to share in the fruit. And so he sends a servant to him. A servant is representative of the prophets that were sent by God to the nation of Israel. And so they took him and they beat him and they sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent another servant and they beat him also, treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent a third and they wounded him also and, and cast uh, him out. Throughout the history of the nation of Israel, we see how poorly they treated the prophets that were sent to them by God. And here we see that Jesus is recounting the history of the relationship of God's people with God himself there in the nation. And so a third time, he sends him. They wounded him also and cast uh, him out. Verse 13, then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. And probably they will respect him when they see him. And so Jesus now is declaring that he himself has now come. 
But the vine dressers saw him and they reasoned among themselves saying, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him that the inheritance may be ours. If land, if the landowner died and there was no heir, whoever had possession of the land would then take title to that land. So if they kill the heir and they have possession of the land, they now will become the owners of the land. And so uh, they say, come, let us kill him that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and they killed him. And therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. Jesus isn't telling them right now that he is aware of what their intention is, that they have murderous intent in their heart towards him and that Jesus is completely aware of it. But Jesus is telling them that though they seek to destroy him, they themselves are the ones that are embracing destruction that the vine dressers are going to be judged and the vineyard is going to be removed from them and given to others. He is talking about the church. He is talking about who is going to oversee God's people. And it was the old covenant and those religious leaders that were taking and overseeing the Mosaic covenant. But now the Mosaic covenant would be replaced with the new covenant. And now no longer would those vine dressers be over God's vineyard. But there is going to be the church now. And so they will be cast out and others will be established. Who are the others that were going to be established? The apostles are the others to whom are now going to be given authority over God's people. And so he says to those religious leaders that you are going to be cast out. And, and their response in verse 16, and when they heard it, they said, certainly not, absolutely not. No way is that going to happen. And Jesus quotes scripture to them then. He goes to the 118th Psalm, a Psalm that most scholars believe is a, a Psalm of King David. And he is going to recite a verse. The verse that is quoted here is the most commonly quoted verse from the Old Testament that we have in the entire New Testament. It is the fulfillment uh, of uh, that verse that Jesus now is declaring that their very actions uh, are going to be the fulfillment too. And then he looked at them and he said, what then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief and cornerstone. And whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. The, the cornerstone was the most important stone in a building. It was the first stone that was set. It was normally the largest, the most precious, the most well-cut and manicured. And from that cornerstone, every other stone was then set in relative position to the cornerstone. And so here in this prophecy that's contained in Psalm 118, here's a stone that the builders reject that ends up being 
the chief cornerstone. That chief cornerstone is none other than Jesus Christ himself. And the builders that rejected it, they are the religious leaders. And Jesus came to build the kingdom of God upon belief in him and faith in him. We see that throughout the Old Testament, there is talk about God sending a chief cornerstone. We see that Isaiah talks about the chief cornerstone. And, and so whoever falls on that stone will be broken. It is interesting that oftentimes it is our pride that keeps us from coming to Jesus. But if we will come in humility, and if we are broken and convicted of our sin and we repent, we will find salvation. But if we fight against God, if we seek to reject that stone, then that stone most indefinitely will bring judgment and will bring destruction to us. In verse 19, after Jesus now has declared this parable of judgment against the religious leaders, we see now it says in verse 19, and the chief priests and the scribes that very hour sought to lay hands on him, but they feared the people, for they knew he had spoken this parable against them. And so they are like, oh, how do we get our hands on Jesus? Look at him. He is coming right into our temple and he's setting up shop and he is teaching and preaching and how are we going to, to stop him? And so it says in verse 20, so they watched him. <laughs> I like that because they couldn't do anything else. <laughs> they just had to watch uh, Jesus. And they sent spies who pretended to be righteous. They sent spies uh, in. Spies that were mixed in now with the people who had come to hear Jesus. I can't imagine what that must have been like to hear Jesus and actually preach and to teach. Pure, perfect silk. Pure, perfect truth. Untainted, unmixed, no prejudice, just absolute liquid grace and love pouring from Jesus' mouth. Just explaining how much God loves you. How he created you to be in relationship with him and that your sin has separated you from God but that he's come to remove that sin that you now can enter into a deep abiding relationship with him. No condemnation, just forgiveness. No law, just grace and mercy. The law of love will replace the Mosaic law and you will abide connected to one another, built into the family of God. And that offer is for all eternity and the glory of what is waiting for you. Jesus just simply poured truth out in a way that people had never heard it. They would declare no one We've never heard anybody speak like this. And the reason they had never heard anybody speak like that is that no one has ever spoken like that. The people were just enraptured with the truth of God's love being poured out through Jesus onto the people and mixed in with all of those people that had come to hear the truth were these spies 
with tape recorders, trying to find a sound bite that they can take out of context and form a charge and run it over to Pilate to see if they can't get him crucified. <laughs> and so they mixed these spies. And, and no doubt with Jesus, it's like, there's a spy, 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 and all these faces turn towards him. He sees everything. And he knew exactly what was going on, but he continued to just love and to minister. Oh, they sent spies who pretended to be righteous. They mixed in amongst the people who were hungry to hear what Jesus had to say. It said in order to deliver him to the power and authority of the governor. And then they asked him, one of the spies now, or several of the spies, they spoke up and they asked him saying, teacher, we know that you say and teach rightly, and you do not show personal favoritism, but teach the way of God in truth. Do you love the flattery? <laughs> Typically, flattery is saying those things that are not true in order to curry favor now and manipulate a, a desire that you want. But but here the flattery is true. <laughs> Only they don't believe that the flattery is true and, and oh, that they would just simply believe the words that they actually had uttered. Look at what they said. They said of him, teacher, and Jesus is indeed a teacher, the greatest teacher that has ever walked the face of the earth. We know that you say and teach rightly, morally upright, and that you do not show personal favoritism. We are all equal opportunity sinners before God, and God's not impressed with any one of us. Jesus shows absolutely no partiality whatsoever. He says that you show no personal favoritism, but you teach the way of God in truth. And the question would be, why won't you listen to your own words? But now as they have buttered Jesus up with flattery, they take the point of the spear and try and pierce Jesus right to the soul with it in front of everybody. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? In front of the crowd, they ask Jesus a political hot question, an issue that was current in their day, and that was the taxes to Caesar. Taxes are, are never enjoyed by anybody, and in an occupied nation giving taxes to another nation to support them, that, that is more odious, but, but to the Jews who considered themselves to be gods and people and taking God's money and sending it to a pagan government who would then support pagan lifestyles, that, that, that now, that eclipsed their threshold of pain. And so the people, they declare that this was wrong, they shouldn't be paying taxes, and, and now they come and they ask Jesus that very question. Knowing that Jesus' answer here will instantly either destroy his popularity or destroy him. They were seeking in front of everybody to erode his popularity. It would be like asking Jesus if he was here, Jesus, are you a Republican or a Democrat? 
knowing that if he says uh, Republican, the Democrats are going to uh, depart from following him. And if he says uh, Democrat, the Republicans will depart. Which are you, Jesus? Declare in front of everybody what your position is uh, on this. And they, they think that they have Jesus now in this box. If Jesus says that they should pay taxes, the popularity of Jesus will absolutely diminish because they felt so passionately about that issue. But if Jesus says they shouldn't pay their taxes, <laughs> they will take that soundbite and instantly bring it to Pilate and say that he is now fostering a rebellion against uh, Caesar, against the Roman Empire, is inciting the people to not pay their taxes. And, and the charge of sedition will be levied against him, which is a capital offense. So Jesus, lose your popularity or lose your life. Which do you pick? in front of everybody, make your answer. But Jesus, verse 23, perceived their craftiness. Jesus just kind of smiles. I think he smiles to himself. Crafty, that was, that was a well thought through trap that you, that you planned. But can you imagine trying to trap God? <laughs> We're going to build a trap and catch God, you know, in, in this trap. And they, they worked hard at, at making this trap. And Jesus just kind of laughs at it, you know. It's like, clever. It's not going to work, but it was clever, you know. And nonetheless, and he, he appreciates their, their craftiness. It's misguided. Uh, he perceived their craftiness. And he said to them, why do you test me? Why do you test me instead of listening to me? Why don't you listen to me? Show me a denarius. Whose image and inscription does it have? And they answered and said, Caesar's. Remember, a denarius is a day's wage. $100 bill. Show me a $100 bill. Whose emblem is on the $100 bill? And so... For 2,700 years, man has been using coins now to uh, exchange and to put value in. And almost from their inception, they have been uh, stamped now with various different images. In Jesus' day, the denarius was stamped with an imprint of the bust of Caesar Augustus that was upon it. And, and that stamp shows uh, ownership. You, you put your name on things that you own. I remember when I was playing Little League, my baseball glove had my name written uh, all over the glove, and the bat that I would bring had my name uh, on it. I, uh, I remember that... Uh, that uh, Woody in the, had, had his name of Andy on his uh, foot uh, there. You inscribe the names on the things that are, uh, that are yours. And, and that little chunk of metal, it, it had an imprint, it had a name, and that was Caesar's. And so Jesus asks, whose name is on it? Who, whose picture is on it? Who has identified their ownership uh, uh, of that? And they answered and they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, render therefore to Caesar's, to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things uh, that are God's. 
we see that throughout the Bible, the New Testament, it teaches that we are to be good citizens of the government that has authority over us. Romans 13.1 tells us, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. God has appointed governments to oversee people and so we are to be good citizens of those governing authorities taxes are the funding for the governments uh, that oversee the people we see in first peter 2 it says therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the lord's sake whether to the king as supreme. And so the things that are Caesar's taxes, they go to Caesar's. But the things that are God's, those are to go to God. Now, what is it that is God's that is supposed to be directed to him and to him only? And that's worship. We are to worship God and to worship nobody and nothing else except God. You render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but you give God. Remember that Caesar wanted worship, and he was declaring that he himself was God. But we will not worship Caesar. We will worship God. We will render to Caesar the things that, that are Caesar's. And verse 26, but they could not catch him in his words in the presence of the people, and they marveled at his answer and kept silent. They couldn't catch him. They were trying to catch Jesus in his words. And it made me think that, that both sides were trying to catch the other side. Jesus was trying to catch them, and they were trying to catch Jesus. You see, they were trying to catch Jesus to destroy them, and Jesus was trying to catch them to save them. And Jesus is still trying to catch everybody in order to be able to rescue them and save them. As we close our study here, I want to draw our attention for a moment to verse 17. And, and that's where it says that the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. The chief cornerstone. In Isaiah chapter 28, it says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. And whoever believes will not act hastily, and I will also make justice the measuring line, and righteousness will be the plummet, will be the, the plumbod. Here we see that in Isaiah, God was saying that he is going to send a precious cornerstone upon which uh, he will build uh, from. In the New Testament, in Paul and Peter's writings, we see that Jesus is that in chief cornerstone. Paul, writing to the Ephesians in chapter 2, says, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. The new covenant is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. It used to be that there was a temple in Jerusalem was the place where now God's people congregated to worship. But now there is going to be a new temple, not one constructed with hands, but a spiritual temple. And Jesus Christ himself 
is the cornerstone upon which every other stone fits. The foundation is fitted around that cornerstone and then the building is built up upon that foundation. Jesus, the cornerstone, the apostles and the prophets, the foundation, and now every single saint, you and I, being fitted as a stone into this temple and we now are the living temple where God abides and dwells, Jesus Christ being that cornerstone. He is the cornerstone to the church, but he is also the cornerstone to every single one of our lives. You see, prior to being saved, you had a cornerstone. I had a cornerstone. We all have a, a cornerstone. The cornerstone is, is that which you build your in, entire life uh, around. And, and for some, it's their intelligence. And they build their life around their intellect. And everything is fitted around their intellect. For others, it's a, a skill, a gift, a, a craft, a musician, an artist. A, something that they have that becomes the cornerstone of their life. It becomes their identity and also through which they now operate their entire life from that perspective that they, that they have. For others, it's their, their looks and they find that they can open doors and advance just on, on the beauty that they have been given in their life. It becomes their cornerstone, their operating system in their life. But when we receive Jesus Christ into our life, our lives already had a cornerstone in it and they had been constructed around that cornerstone. But now there is a new cornerstone that is seeking to take residence in your heart. And, and so there must be a complete demolition of the old structure to be able to pull that cornerstone out and now replace it with the new cornerstone. Jesus Christ himself, through which now every decision, our identity lies in our relationship to Jesus Christ. Every decision that we make in our life is fitted uh, against uh, the perspective of the cornerstone and, and how it all now works together and fits together in a person's life. So oftentimes people want to add Jesus to their building and keep the cornerstone that they've had as the cornerstone that they have. But that cornerstone and Jesus as the cornerstone, you cannot have two cornerstones, two orientation points. There can only be one. And so oftentimes people want Jesus as a savior and they want to add the blessings of God into their life without ever changing the cornerstone in their life. And they will struggle. They will wrestle and battle and fight because there will be a war in their soul between these two cornerstones until finally there is a submission to the cornerstone that takes preeminence in a person's heart in a person's life. And once Jesus Christ becomes not just your savior, becomes Lord and cornerstone to your life, your life will now be built solidly upon that foundation, that rock of Jesus Christ. Jesus would say that if you try and build with any other cornerstone in your life, it's like putting a house on sand. 
that the lives and trials and tribulations will shift beneath that and cause that structure to break and eventually fall apart. But a person who builds their life upon the solid rock of Jesus Christ embedded as the cornerstone and the reference to every decision that you make, every day, every action, every thought filtered through the reference of Jesus Christ as my cornerstone. This is a life that will be built up solidly and will receive the fullness of the blessings in a person's life. He is the only cornerstone upon which a life that is blessed and rich can function. Is he your cornerstone? That is the question before us today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And help us, Lord. Help us to yield to you as our chief cornerstone in our life. Lord, that you would have no comp competition from, from anything else in our life. That we would yield wholly and totally over to you. Jesus, thank you for coming and being our salvation, our deliverer. We yield to you and we enthrone you in our life today. Bless us, God, and help us now. And it's in Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen. All right, if you have never accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, then I want to see you after service, and we can take care of that uh, right here. If you need prayer, I want to invite you to come forward for prayer as well. Tomorrow.